it's more important to understand things from a seller's perspective because a lot of times sellers don't actually know why it's beneficial to them in the first place. And then buyers don't know why it's beneficial to sellers. Welcome to the Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. Knowledge, experiences, and actionable takeaways from those who are killing it with short-term rentals. Here's your host, Jeremy Warden. We are back with Brian on the second part of this Short-Term Rental Pros Podcast. Special episodes on seller finance. And Ryan, how you been the last few days, brother? Pretty good. I hear that you are under contract on another property. I am. Yep. Yep. I think we went under contract on Tuesday or Wednesday of last week. Just had the inspection done, have some issues, you know, that came up there, but hopefully nothing that's a deal breaker. But yeah, I was definitely pretty happy to go under contract and then rates just fell like what half mm. a point in the last yeah. two days. Yeah. So definitely make sure if you, if you guys already have pre-approvals and that, make sure that you check with your lender to get those updated because you'll probably get a half a point decrease from what we're seeing with the rates dropping. Which is just crazy. Think about that literally two days, a two day difference on when you get that rate lock. And mm -hmm. for those of you guys, if you guys are under contract, normally when you're going through the process with the lender, there's a point when like the quote unquote, like the rates are locked uh, up until then they're, they're subject to change. So sometimes people try to like time the rates. I never recommend timing the rates. I just feel like you can't. However, if you were like potentially, I mean, if you already had a rate lock, could you just, could you rate lock again? Or would you start shopping loans around at that point? I guess, what would you do mm -hmm. if, if you rate locked and then rates dropped a half percent? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I learned probably early, it was whenever when interest rates were super volatile, I want to say later 2022, earlier this year, one of the things you can actually put in your contracts is what's called the financing contingency. So if for whatever reason, everybody knows appraisal contingency that the, the property has to, to appraise and the bank will give you a loan. Everybody knows about inspection contingency, but another contingency is actually financing contingency. So if your financing changes between when you write the contract, it gives you the right to back out of the deal. And so an example of that is if I'm using, let's say a DSCR loan and my, the, the property needs to produce certain gross rent compared to what I'm going to pay it in mortgage interest and the interest rates go up, that deal doesn't pencil out anymore and I'm actually able to back out. Yeah. So financing contingencies are, are important. They're important nowadays, again, with this volatile interest rate environment. But yeah, man, what, what else? What else? I know we, we went deep last week, but what else is, is new with you on the real estate side of things? Yeah, we're doing a ton of year end tax planning for people. November and December is probably where I make all my money, just helping people save before the end of the year, telling people to, to jump, some, telling some people not to jump and everywhere in between. I, I would say one of the most important concepts to understand, and I just sent out an email to 8,000 people this morning. If you're not on the list, you should check it out. We'll link it in the show notes below. But timing is everything. So when you do real estate moves or events, or you want to go pull money out of your 401k or IRA, you have to be really careful with the timing of when you do that. If, you, if I sell a house on December 15th and I have to pay a capital gain, let's say I owe tax, that tax bill is due April 15th of 2024. So I only have four months to pay it. 
Versus if I waited until let's say January 5th to sell the house, then I don't have to pay the capital gain tax bill until April 15th of 2025. So I buy myself an entire year just because I was smart with the timeline. Yeah. So timing, timing is everything. Uh, people talk to me right now. They're like, yo, I want to buy that, buy a house by the end of the year to do the short-term loophole. Like, mm -hmm. what do I have to do by the end of the year? What I tell them, and I, I, that's why I love having Ryan on, because I can say, you know, I'm not a CPA here. So, but then, you know, Ryan is one, so he can actually say things without saying that I'm not a CPA. But what I say is like, all right, you got to show three rentals by the end of the year that are under seven days on average. I'm going to be honest. I don't know how in depth someone's going to check as to, you know, did they, they they're going to put cameras <laughs> on the front of your house and, and look and see if someone, you know, came in, are they, or do they, maybe are they going to check a rental agreement? Like if even, so I just say, mm -hmm. you got to have three rentals by the end of the year that are less than, so if you close on the 31st, I don't, it might be a little bit hard to say that you got three rentals in between December 31st and January 1st. If you close December 1st, you know, do you even need to rent the house with furniture? I don't know. Ryan, do you? <laughs> so that's something we're, we're still waiting to see on because a lot of these short, short term miles haven't gone to audit yet. And so my, for what I've been telling people is that to be available for rent, it has to be ready for its intended use. And so if you're, if you're having a short-term rental, it should be fully furnished. Now, can you use the old owner's furniture? Yeah. So if you're, if you're tight on the wire, one thing you might want to do, especially if you're closing in early December is just get it, just run it out as is for the first month. And then next year, go in and swap the furniture and the hardware and whatever you need to or, do. Or maybe you go to Walmart, get some air mattresses. Yeah. But one of the things you said there that's important is what happens if you place on December 31st? Uh, so unfortunately, you you won't qualify to take the, the short-term rental against your W-2 or your business income, but that property is still considered placed in the service, which means you can still use the losses and depreciation from the property to offset any other rental income that you might have. So if your portfolio did really well that year, or let's say you sold the property at a gain, as long as you get the property, the new property in service before the end of the year, December 31st, you could use that loss to offset the gain from the other property. Yeah. A lot of people obviously though want to leverage a short-term rental loophole as a way to get rid of their W-2, mm -hmm. just because it is really the only thing you can do. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are there other strategies to to offset taxes against your W-2 income or is really the short term? I mean, you can I know you can write off primary mortgage insurance on, on your primary home or sorry, mortgage interest on your primary mm -hmm. home. Like there's little things here and there, but like there's nothing nearly as powerful as a short term rental loophole, at least in my opinion. Yeah, if you're a W-2, I always say this, it's funny, but if you're W-2, the only real options you have are to contribute to 401ks. HSA accounts or to have more babies. And then most people laugh after I say that. But that's really the only option that you have if you're W-2 to in order to save money on taxes. I mean, sure, you could go start up a business and lose a bunch of money, but why would you want to do that? And that's why short-term rentals are just so beneficial because you'll actually cash flow and you can use the losses that are generated to offset your W-2. There's some more 
There's more aggressive strategies, especially in the oil and gas field, as well as the charitable donation part. But they're they're very aggressive, and the IRS is looking out for those strategies. So we typically don't recommend them to people unless they're more on the risk seeking side. Yeah, we we definitely want to stay out of the the, the scope from the IRS. So okay, so right now cost cost seg rush everybody. You know, you've got a whole year to do it, but a lot of times folk procrastinate and wait till the end of the year, which we're definitely seeing along the board. But let's let's get into what we talked about last episode and kind of continue it, continue it here, which is seller financing, specifically subject to. You know, last time, last conversation, if you guys haven't listened to Ryan and I, we talked about, you know, what the benefits to seller finance was for a buyer and a seller. We really took the perspective of like, it's more important to understand things from a seller's perspective because a lot of times sellers don't actually know why it's beneficial to them in the first place. And then buyers don't know why it's beneficial to sellers. So the only way you're going to convince a seller to do seller finance is if you know why it's actually good for them. And we talked about the examples where it genuinely is good for them. But this time we're going to talk about Subject to which guys the difference, Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong. The difference between subject or subject to and seller finance is seller finance, the the seller becomes the bank. So instead of getting a loan out from you know Wells Fargo, you're getting a loan out from from Ryan. You know, Ryan's giving you a loan on his house. Hope hope Ryan would give me pretty good terms. Uh, as for subject to the seller or the buyer is taking on the seller's existing mortgage. They're taking it on, they're continuing the payments that the seller is doing. And, and the bank is still the bank. Just the yeah. new buyer has effectively committed to paying those bank payments. Ryan, was, was I, is there anything you want to add there? No, I, I would just also mention, let's, let's kind of talk about what it, what it is not. Um, subject two is not you assuming a loan. Uh, do not say that if you're doing if you're buying a property using subject to don't say that you're assuming the loan because the uh, Pace Morby group people of the world will get extremely mad at you for saying that I've done it before so learn from my <laughs> mistake but let's before we get into subject to let's talk about the loans that are that are actually assumable what what so, what is the what is the difference between assumable then and subject to so assumable in my opinion is is a lot it's a more of a safer, kosher transaction to do for all parties involved because it's, it's when you're technically like it's when you're talking to the bank and they do the paperwork where now you're actually on the loan. Yeah. And so let's say Jeremy has a nice FHA super low interest rate loan, but he wants to move. He wants to move. He wants to get on New York City. His, his payment's too high and he doesn't. He wants to allow me to assume his loan. I'm able to buy Jeremy out for the equity that he has and take over his existing mortgage. Assume basically step into the shoes of his existing mortgage. So if he had an outstanding loan balance of 500K and interest rate of 2.8, I get to step into the shoes of that. And the key word is you have to owner occupy it as well. So FHA, VA loans are assumable. And so if you could find somebody that has that, that wants to sell, look into taking over or assuming their loan rather than just buying the property in a normal sale because you'll probably get in there for a lot cheaper and a way lower rate. 
Got it, guys. Yeah, so that works for VA loans, which are mm-hmm. military military financing, as well as FHA loan, which, you know, folk, why would this be? Let's just kind of go into, first of all, why would this be beneficial for someone with an FHA loan or VA loan? Ryan, what are the unique like down payment care aspects of both of those loan types? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when somebody buys a loan with with FHA or VA, they're they're going to be super low down payments. So VA you can actually buy with zero money down, zero percent down. FHA is three and a half. But these people that buy these houses, they don't have a lot of equity in the property for a few years. If you're buying a property with three and a half percent down, you're not going to really build up decent equity in that house for until like seven or eight years until you finally start building up some decent equity because so much of that so much of your payment's going to go towards interest. And the same thing with VA loans. And that's why those are a really good target to assume because when you assume a loan, typically you're just going to buy the owner out for his or her share of the equity and then step into the shoes of their mortgage. So Somebody putting 3.5% down on a $500,000 house, they got $20,000 down. But five, six years later, they, they probably, their principal, their, their pay down is probably only forty or 50000 bucks. So I could, I could buy a five hundred At that point, it'll probably be even worth more. But you know, I could buy a five or $600,000 house, take on a sub 4% interest rate loan, and all I'm out of pocket is forty or 50000 bucks. Yeah, and, and and one situation we're seeing this really, you know, come into play right now is in the in the Sun Belt. So a lot of markets in Texas, Arizona, property prices property prices just ballooned during COVID. Austin, Texas is probably the most prime example where a home that was like five hundred thousand might be one a million at one point in 2022 and and a lot of folk bought, you know, with low down payments, they moved from California, they did low down payment loans. So, you know, maybe FHA 3.5%, maybe conventional 5%, but let's just say they did like an FHA loan at 3.5% down. They only actually have 35 grand in equity. And the, that million dollar home might only be worth 800,000 now. 2 years later, home prices have decreased. So, not only do they lack mm equity, they might actually have negative equity. So if they were to sell that house at 800,000 and keep in mind, you also have got to pay that 6%, the 6% more or the 6% agent fee, which actually that's definitely a current event. Are you, did you hear about the, yeah. the NAR? And I'm actually going to the NAR, NAR conference, National Association of Realtors conference next week when they just had a $1.8 billion, like anti, anti-monopoly lawsuit because of that setting that 6% rate for buyers and sellers agents. We can get we can get to that later. Sorry, not to not to riff off topic, but I I told my cowork, my colleagues at BNB Cal cuz we're going to the conference next week. I'm like this might be a this probably won't be the happiest conference <laughs> of all time <laughs> because that's like such a big such a big big thing that happened. We'll we'll talk about that one later. But going back to the example, so not only do you have low equity in a house, you have negative equity. You know, if you put 35k down at a million dollars and now it's 800k you have what negative maybe negative 160 grand of equity in the house so if you were to sell the house you owe the bank you know after the realtors fees the closing fees all that stuff you might owe the bank several hundred thousand dollars so 
in your case, it's very, very unopportunistic, you know, for you to go that route. It's much better for you to just say, hey, someone come in. I've got a low interest rate here. I got this at three, four percent. You can have it. <laughs> you can have it. Maybe even like I'll even hand you the keys. Maybe you don't even have to give me any any down payment. Like I'll potentially just hand you the keys. But at that point, really, the the loan becomes the asset that you're selling. Like yeah. you're, you're selling the house, but but really, like you're making it attractive to somebody because you have that fixed low interest rate debt. So that's where someone might assume the loan if it's FHA or VA. What is the other situation that's not assuming the loan? What's the situation where it's subject I was, toing? I was going to say one more point on there, especially in those highly appreciated markets like Austin. People who buy buy properties using 3.5% or 0% down, the reason why they're doing that is probably because they don't have a lot of money. And what happens when their their property does go up in value and those property tax bills hit? Like if your property value in Austin goes from 600 k to 800 k and now you're paying an extra five grand a year in property taxes. Like those people can't afford that. And so it's just another reason why somebody with low money down would would need to get out of their current mortgage. It, it, it's really sad because it's just like a revolving door of like if you get in for low money down, but you can't afford it, odds are you're going to get rid of it after five, six years, and you probably won't have any equity in it after you sell and pay your realtor fees. Yeah, so you'll come you'll come out where you began. So there's really no benefit to to I know people say buying versus renting, but if you mm -hmm. have no equity anyways. And that's why I I mean I don't own a primary home. Like I don't know like I don't you know, I every asset I have I'm I'm trying to you know, maximize. I do stay in like my assets because I, you know, they're nice places. So but that being said, we got like, I don't, I think about things from the investment lens and you don't want to put yourself in a situation where, you know, you buy in a place that's not appreciating and the value of the house goes down and you put yourself in a bind. But if you do put yourself in a bind, maybe subject to maybe seller finance, like maybe there's creative ways to get yourself out of the bind. Mm -hmm. And then for, you know, probably folk listening here, that's not the situation they're in or they want to be there. They're on the, the other side, which is they're trying to get cash flowing assets. And in order to do that, getting low interest rate debt is a great way, you know, to set yourself up for success in that regard. So what is, so we talked about, we talked, we talked about essentially literally talking to the bank, get assuming someone's loan, meaning your name's now on it, the sellers. And when your name's now on it, is that then added to your DTI? Yeah. When you assume somebody's loan, because you have to qualify for the loan, and the reason why I know a lot about this is my little brother might assume my existing loan on this house in, in the future, right? So I, I know all about not, the. Not the if you're watching loans. on YouTube, he's doing a fagazi background because he's uh, self conscious about his, his ironing board and his, his couch, <laughs> his uh, Habitat of Humanity ha couch that he normally has behind him. And so he's. He, I'm very familiar with assuming loans. Now, the person who's assuming the loan, they have to qualify for it just like they would a normal, a regular loan. But yeah, when I sell the property or when I sell the property to my brother, let's say he, that hits his DTI and then it comes off my DTI because I'm no longer responsible for the payments. Got it. So it gets, gets taken away from yours and added to his. Does that, mm -hmm. does that differ from subject to? And what is subject yeah, to? We probably said subject to 25 times on this podcast without actually saying what it is yet. I think you want to dive into it. So let's give, give, them, a, give them a background on it. 
All right. I, what I've been wanting you to do the whole time is wish me a happy birthday here so I can start talking about my birthday. That's what I really wanted. <laughs> Subject to Jeremy's birthday, guys. Yeah. And for those listening, guys, today is actually my my birthday, November 6th. Uh, so just had to throw that one out there. But yeah, tonight I'm going to my girlfriend is taking me to a Bucks Nets game, which I'm super excited about. And is yeah, Damian so Lillard and Giannis both playing? Yep, yep. And and I'm actually I'm, I'm a Nets fan. I mean, we we stay here in Brooklyn, so we're locals, I suppose, in in a way. But all right, back to my excitement about Subject 2. So, Subject 2 and Ryan, if if you have a different impression, let me know, but it's really simple. You just log in and start paying somebody else's mortgage. So, let's say they they, you know, they they're getting serviced by some random, you know, some random loan servicer you just get their email get their password you go in you put the auto pay to your bank and you transfer title of the house so the owner of the house changes to you the title's the document the deed document so that changes but the loan is still in someone else's name you're just literally going in and paying it for them mm-hmm. yeah i mean you pretty much summed it up so You'll also probably have a legal binding contract between the seller and the buyer as well, stating that the buyer is now responsible for the the payments, right? Now, I guess one of the things that's kind of up in the water is that it still, under Fannie and Freddie guidelines, and I've tried to pick through this with lenders, and it still remains in the seller's name. And that could be the problem for some people is if I sell my house, yeah, sorry, the loan still remains in the seller's name. So when, if, I guess the biggest worry, and that's why we talked about assuming a loan first before subject to it, just the biggest worry with this is that if the bank sees that the title changed names, changed hands, especially if the loans now responsible to be paid by somebody else, Technically, could the bank come and call the original note due? Yeah, and that's that's the that's the million dollar question. If you ask yeah. uh, Pace Morby and any of their gang, no. <laughs> but from my understanding, as long as the mortgage is getting paid, banks don't really care who's like on title. Mm-hmm. As long as the mortgage is getting paid, so if the mortgage stops getting paid then they might look and say, all right, what's going on here? Why is, why is, you know, the person who we gave the loan to not making the payments, but what's going to tip them off or make them care unless, unless something happens. So that's, that's my understanding. And, you know, in our, my opinion, mortgage officers and that loan world right now has like bigger things to worry about (laughs) than the super small percentage of people who subject to someone's loan. But yeah, that that is the that is the question there, and you're the CPA, so you're allowed to say your opinion without a disclaimer. I think it's really the opposite. <laughs> I'm, I'm regulated over here. You got nothing. Well, I just have to give a disclaimer after. Not a CPA, however, just just do it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but de- definitely make make sure that the situation you're in. Again, I would just say my recommendation is pay the mortgage every month. Like go into a cash flowing asset. Yeah. Don't go into like, don't just assume someone's loan or 
well, don't subject to someone's loan just because their interest rate's 3%. So you ignore the rest of the deal. You, you, you don't care about the small details because you're like, well, I got this loan at 3%. So I, I got a steal here. Nah, you still got to run your numbers on the property. You still got to make sure it cash flows. It could be 3%, but it might be 3% of 1.2 million instead of 3% of 800,000 or sorry, 6% of 800,000. You might up, you know, your monthly payment might end up even being more at 3% based off the purchase price. So recommendations is just run the damn numbers as, as always. So, all right. Any any other, anything else that, that our listeners should know about subject to in particular? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing with subject to, in my opinion is, and I've never done a subject to loan. I've only done, I, at this point I have done traditional seller financing and I've also assumed an SBA loan. That's all I've done. And that's what I meant to say earlier is SBA loans are actually assumable. So if you have like a mom and pop with some commercial debt and they're looking to get out and they, they don't, they, it's not fully paid off looking to maybe assuming their most commercial debt or SBA, SBA loans are assumable. I digress. But with seller financing, I'm sorry, with subject two, the most important thing is an exit plan. Because if for whatever reason, the let's just say the bank is going to come and call that loan or the seller's pissed off because they're like, well, this is, it's still in my debt to income, but it's your house now. And it's like, this sucks. And you have to get out. You know, what is, what is the, what is the exit plan? Do you have enough financial wherewithal to take on that loan yourself at the current interest rate? Like if I buy a house from Jeremy subject to, and I get his 4% loan, and then the bank wants to come and call the call the loan on the property or get me to refinance or get a new loan at seven and a half percent. Do I have the financial wherewithal and ability to do that? And if the answer is no for the foreseeable future, then don't do the deal originally. Only do the subject to deal if you have the ability to save face if, if things were to go south. Yeah, and and what like what's an example of something going south? Is it this seller who you know has essentially given their credentials to their and given over the title of their house, saying I'm gonna do a password reset here <laughs> unless you unless you buy me out? Like what what what's that look like in practicality? No, I just I just look at it um, from a banking perspective. Like I would never want uh, that to happen. I think getting a note called due is probably the most like scariest thing I could ever think of having happen, <laughs> especially having over $3 million of debt in my name, like having a bank come and call that loan would be frightening. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with <laughs> you on that one. And uh, yeah, liens, different liens on, on houses and, and stuff that, that stuff gives me, gives me nightmares, which honestly, when you get to more and more properties, like just keeping track of like, all right, are we paying? property tax because like sometimes and i don't need to vent from like a recent you know personal kind of situation but like sometimes your loan is a they hold property tax like on a monthly basis they escrow it sometimes they don't you know so you've got to pay like commercial loans often don't escrow property tax so you have to remember to pay that on an annual basis sales tax sometimes sometimes airbnb remits payments on your behalf I would say most of the time, Verbo remits payments on your behalf, but there are certain counties in certain places where they don't remit property tax payments. 
So, you know, after two years, you might have thought that Airbnb was sending property tax. And yeah, I actually had that had that happen where it was like, oh, crap, all of a sudden, like we were paying taxes, but there was an additional tax that the only county, essentially Palm Beach County in Florida is the only county in the state of Florida where they don't remit their like tourism tax to the county. Airbnb doesn't. So, you know, we had fines on that one plus interest and, you know, we had cash in the bank to like take care of it, but it's just, yeah, you want to keep track of if the, you keep growing your portfolio, like you got to just keep track and make sure that you're paying your mortgages. You know, you don't, you don't stop, you don't not look for a month and then, you know, a mortgage, a mortgage bounces, a mortgage payment bounces. Uh, and they're starting the foreclosure process. <laughs> and then when they do that, yeah. then they look at who has, you know, then they might look into it, everything a little bit. So yeah, keep track, keep track of everything. Keep track of your taxes, sales tax, property tax, annual tax payments. I mean, for me, like I do my estimates personally, my estimates for my corporation, making sure that there's money in those bank accounts because those hit quarterly and you want to make sure you're paying everything. So tangible advice is just, as your portfolio grows, like keep track and documents of like all the taxes and fees you're paying your bank, you're paying your state, you're paying your county and keep a record of when you need to pay them just so, you know, you don't get yeah notice, uh, a notice of, of something at some point. Also make sure your addresses are right. This is also a personal, <laughs> personal situation. <laughs> if you, if you move, you know, like, Update your damn address on all your documents because a lot of times, like, yeah, you might get your statement over email, but if like something, you know, again, something happens unforeseen, uh, you forget, you know, you forget to pay something and they, a lot of times they'll send you notice over mail. They don't send like the bad notices over email. So if you don't have, you haven't updated your address on something, you might on everything, you might miss a really important document. So yeah, now we've kind of yeah. gone into doomsday on my birthday a little bit, but uh, yeah, let's, 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 let's lighten everyone's mood here a little bit. Why, you know, why, like, why can, you know, getting a deal subject to seller finance, like change the trajectory of your life. And especially, I mean, if thing that's cool about subject two is, and I don't want to quote Pace Morby commercials here, because I, I get the ads a lot, which it's, you know, no, like, no, what's he say? Like, no like no you need to no income verification no like you like essentially you don't have to show anything because the seller might not even know to like do a background check on you or anything like that so you can you can get these loans get these houses with no credit history or anything like that that's right. that's definitely one of the benefits right yeah uh, yeah i mean they don't have to pull tax returns you know nobody's nobody is no expecting agency. yeah yeah, I mean, there's just so much. There's there's a lot of upside, and that I think that kind of goes back to the the last podcast that we did, where when I first learned about seller financing or creative financing, I, I used to always think that it was really in the buyer's best interest. Maybe it was at the time because rates were just overall super low. But I would say educating the seller on why doing creative financing or seller financing is your, your number one shot to getting those deals done. I, again, I used to think that, man, no tax returns, no income verification. I don't need to pass DTI. What's in it for the seller? The seller, they're giving me a loan at a super low rate, but we talked about before, really it's taxes and inflation is why the seller 
especially in seller financing, would want to do that because if they do get a windfall of cash, odds are they'll have to pay a tax bill. Um, and then number two, if they have that, once that cash is taxed and it's sitting in their bank account, it's going to lose value to inflation. So they're better off seller financing it to you because that the the payment that they're getting on that maybe it's a five or six percent rate five percent rate is going to be better than if they were to take that money and invest it into some other asset yeah and, and something again rel relevant to me and my situation we currently the property that we're under contract on we are actually we're looking at doing an adjustable rate mortgage mm -hmm. And I want to get into just the pros and cons of that because I think it's super important. I saw the headline the other day that like the number of adjustable rate mortgages was at like a 10 year high or something. And an, what an adjustable rate mortgage is the rate you get to start is not the one that you end with. So oftentimes mm -hmm. they switch every five years. So for instance, the one that we're looking at, it starts at 7%. And after five years, it can it can go up to nine percent. It's capped at a two percent increase, and then over the lifetime of the loan, the highest it can go to is thirteen percent. So like a six percent increase from the initial amount. So the way we're looking at that, and that actually might go down. That was like Friday's rate because rates dropped half a percent over the weekend. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if I looked it up right now and it went down like a quarter percent or a half a percent there. But the way I think about it is, I would rather have an adjustable rate mortgage with a rate increase cap than a balloon mortgage. Cause I, I currently mm. have two balloon commercial loans that are five-year balloons. And we got those initially at like 3.7% interest rates. So we're like accustomed to like a pretty low monthly payment, but we're going to have to refinance. So with an adjustable rate mortgage, you don't have to refinance. The rate just changes. Mm -hmm. But with, with, with the balloon payment, you either have to sell it or refinance it. So two properties, one of them, uh, we're looking, we actually have on the market to sell. Uh, the other one we, we don't, and we're prepaying principal on that. So the second one, the one that's cash flowing more, we're saying, all right, if rates are going to reset, you know, three years from now, it can be a higher interest rate, but if we have a lower debt load, then it might equal out. Whereas the other one, we're doing the equation and we're like, all right, it's gone up a lot, a lot in value and we don't want to prepay principal and reduce our risk there. So mm -hmm. we'd rather sell it, you know, in the next year and, and take our profit and lock that into some 30 year fixed rate debt. So I don't know, I guess, what are your thoughts on an adjustable rate mortgage and a balloon payment situation? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to debt allocation within your portfolio. I wouldn't want to have all my portfolio with adjustable rate and I wouldn't want to have all my portfolio with balloon, but very similar to you. If you can, one thing might work over here and then that same principle or strategy may not work over there and just being really key on your, on your numbers. So one of the things that we do is we have what's called like a global debt sheet. So it just lists out every single property, the address, it has the the lender, the person that we have the loan with. We put we also put on there, you know, what do we buy it for? What's the loan balance? What's the rate? And just to make sure that, you know, not too much of our debt is with one bank or is in a certain position, or if we have arms that, you know, if you have like a five year arm that goes into a refinances into a fix or rolls to a fixed, 
make sure that you're not, you don't have all of that come due at, at a certain time. I, I, there's somebody that's in our like mastermind group that has seven or eight properties that they bought that for a steal back in the day. And then now the 2026, 2027, they're, they're going to have all that debt, like commercial balloon debt. And they're going to have to make a decision on, you know, which ones are we selling? Which ones are we keeping? Should we pay down some of them now? It's in a, it's a really risky spot to be in. And it all goes back to what I said earlier about just begin with the end in mind, you know, have, have an exit strategy. Yeah. And, and, and this being said, we talk, or uh, I think a lot of people see the commercial debt, like there's a massive amount of commercial debt out there that's on five-year balloons that are set to mature 2024, 2025, 2026. And they, I've, I've seen some characterization saying, oh, that's going to sink the housing market. And the thing is, most people don't have commercial debt for residential properties. I have two of, two of my properties, so only two, two of them, we have commercial loans. The rest are all, you know, fixed rate, 30 year. I have one arm, but that arm adjusts, you know, max 2% every five years. So again, it's not that the risk is low, you know, if the worst case scenario just goes up 2%. But residential properties in the US, like mortgage delinquencies are low. People, some people have adjustable rate mortgages, but very low people have uh, balloon payments. So it's really not something we're going to see affecting residential real estate. But definitely, if you're in like multifamily, commercial, definitely be on the lookout of kind of, you know, folk like Ryan just explained, who's saying, all right, what am I going to do here? I might have to sell, you know, I might have to sell three of these in order to make everything work. So yeah, for those of y'all in multifamily commercial, just be wary that that that's something a lot of people refinance in 2021 and terms are going to notes are going to come due in 2026. So be on the lookout for that. But I hope we gave you guys a lots of helpful, tangible insights today. Ryan, what is your last tip for, you know, anybody navigating this uncertain environment in order to like best, you know, best sail through the seas? Yeah. I mean, cash in the bank right now is really good. Putting in a super competitive offer. There's going to be a lot of people, I think with the, with the tick down in rates a little bit, there's going to be a lot of people selling now because they can sell at a higher, a little bit higher of a price. There's also going to be people buying because people can afford a little bit more now. Anytime you see a, a, a drop down in interest rates, you could expect more market movement. And whoever has the most cash on hand is going to be the winner now because they could put in more competitive offers. So getting yourself, even if you're not going to be ready, and like we have, like, Kate, you know, we'll just drop a name, like Caitlin from our, our coaching group, right? Mm-hmm. Even though you're not ready yet now, doing the steps and things that you can do to get ready. So that way in five or six months, when you are ready to buy, you're not starting over from scratch. You have all the miss, you have all the pieces except what you're missing, whether that's just time or capital or wait, you know, waiting for a, a deal. Exactly. Prepare, just be prepared, be looking at deals and also yeah, cash is king, but also don't look at a house and feel, I just like tell people don't feel rushed right now. Like it's kind of great because a couple of years ago you had to feel rushed with like everything you did. Like you'd find the perfect house on the market and you'd be like, oh my gosh, this would be a super property, absolute cash flowing machine. But you know, 20 other people are, are looking at it today too. And like crap, crap, crap. 
we got to throw an offer in, go 20, 30, 40 K over. And the way I see it is like, if I feel rushed at all right now, it's like, it's not for me. Like you don't have to be rushed. The opportunities are out there. Like a lot of people are antsy, you know, people are looking at going to, open, there might be 20 people at an open house, but zero offers, you know? So don't just do not feel rushed. There is no need to feel rushed right now. If you're going to feel rushed into doing something, then it's not for you. That's, that's the way I at least see it. And, you know, the house runner contract on was on the market for several months and it dropped in price over, I think 130,000 since, and then we're under, we're under asking significantly. And, you know, I talked to them, we were talking to them before we didn't feel rushed, you know, we waited and now, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But that being said, patience is a virtue. So cash is king. Patience is a virtue. Thank you guys for listening in to the short-term rental pros podcast. And, and Ryan, thanks so much for uh, running back with me. Thanks for having me on the podcast again. Thanks for listening to the short-term rental pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, leave us a five-star rating, like, comment, and share this with someone you know that wants to invest in short-term rentals.